0: And this is why in Europe, we have set our objective to become the first carbon neutral continent by 2050.
1: Welcome to The Jolt. It's Friday, the 3rd of November, and I'm Sam Morgan, your host. Later in today's show, we're going to be looking at whether the European Union's big landmark climate objective, the net zero one described just now by Ursula von der Leyen, should or could be brought forward. So stay tuned for that. First up, let's take a look at some of the major climate and energy stories, making headlines around the world. Danish energy firm Ørsted, the world's largest offshore wind developer, has cancelled two US projects off the coast of the state of New Jersey, citing changes to the tax credit system and problems with construction permits as contributing factors. Orsted's share price tumbled 26%, thanks to the news. And credit rating agency S&P said it might contemplate a downgrade early next year due to the more than five billion dollars in losses faced by the firm. Orsted is still pushing ahead with another wind farm stateside, but this latest development in the sector shows that there is something fundamentally wrong with how the U.S. manages offshore wind and supply chains. <laughs> Sticking with the US energy firm Duke Energy has announced a new project that will completely capture every stage of the green hydrogen production process. The new facility in Florida will be capable of generating the renewables needed to produce clean hydrogen, as well as electrolysis and storage. It will also be equipped with a gas turbine that can run on 100% green H2, the first in the country. Expected to be fully online in 2024. The demonstrator project is meant to help Duke slash its emissions 50% by 2030. Portugal's electricity grid was powered completely by renewables last weekend, according to new data. Massive wind and hydropower output meant Portuguese electricity demand was met 100% by clean energy, with a healthy surplus exported across the border to Spain. Up to five gigawatts of solar PV is expected to be connected to the grid in the coming years, But Portugal still faces a big problem, energy isolation. The Iberian Peninsula is geographically isolated. So when there is no demand in Spain, where will Portugal's clean power go? Either more links with the rest of the EU market are needed or there needs to be serious investments into storage. Probably both. Germany's finance minister says the country's planned 2030 coal phase-out date should be pushed back if not enough affordable energy is available by that point. Christian Lindner claims that the phase-out does nothing for the climate because it would just allow Poland or other countries to pollute more. That does not completely tally with reality because Germany has already said it will cancel its emissions trading permits as the phase-out progresses, meaning it will be very expensive for other countries to step into that vacuum. Lindner does say that regions should be focusing on renewable energy build-out instead, but also that domestic gas production should also increase. Denmark and Vietnam have signed up to a Green Energy Partnership building on the already close ties between the two countries. The agreement includes cooperation on knowledge sharing, potential technology transfers, and financial support. Vietnam wants to install six gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, as its geography and topography really lend itself to wind generation, but there are currently no turbines in operation, so there's lots of potential that Denmark can perhaps help unlock. Kazakhstan has signed up to Japan's Joint Crediting Mechanism, a scheme that is designed to help Japan and its partner countries reduce their carbon emissions. Kazakhstan is set to become the 28th nation to join Japan's JCM. Essentially, Japan will provide financial support, tech transfers and knowledge sharing to help green the Kazakh economy. Any emission reduction credits can then be split between both countries, So Japan can make progress towards its own emissions targets. It's kind of like offshoring decarbonisation in a way. It's a clever bit of a climate accounting made possible by the Paris Agreement. If it results in actual decarbonisation, who are we to judge? China's pledge to scale back its funding of overseas coal power projects is starting to actually come good, according to new data. After President Xi Jinping made the promise in 2021, 4.1 billion tonnes of carbon emissions have been avoided, a report by the Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air now reveals. There are still a lot of plants under development and at various stages of the permitting and construction process, so it isn't a completely impressive scorecard for China. Singapore has completed a 20-month long trial of sustainable aviation fuels and will now come up with a strategy on how to get the greener fuels into commercial use. Singapore Airlines, a partner in the trial, purchased a 1,000 tonnes of neat sustainable aviation fuel, corresponding to about 2,500 tonnes of carbon dioxide reductions. Credits linked to the fuels were then sold on, which the authorities say shows that a viable market of purchasing and trading can be established, increasing the business case for this particular initiative. Small steps, but as we saw in an episode of The Jolt earlier this week, it might be too slow to have a meaningful impact on aviation in the short or medium term. Uh, There's a link to that in the show notes. And in Australia, what is being called the world's first battery-powered heavy haul locomotive, will be put to work transporting iron ore. The FLX drive engine has battery capacity of a simply gigantic seven megawatt hours. Uh, For comparison, an electric car can drive nearly 6,000 kilometers on just one megawatt hour. The locomotive will be completely recharged using regenerative braking as the freight route has uphill and downhill portions. And the current plan is to team the electric engine with diesel locomotives. Iron ore trains are often a couple of kilometers long, so this train set will be hybrid in nature, at least at first. Construction is ongoing, tests are due in the early part of next year, and the big electric machine will enter service in the second half of 2024. This is yet another application that only a couple of years ago pessimists said could not be electrified. Uh, So what's next, I wonder? That's it for the news. Now let's get into the story of the moment. If you go to one particular page on the European Commission's website, you'll be presented with a countdown clock. At the time of recording this episode, it had reached 9,555 days, 14 hours, 50 minutes, and 8 seconds. What on earth could it be counting down to, you ask? Well, it's counting down to the very last moment of 31st of December 2049, the very moment when the European Union is supposed to have achieved climate neutrality. On Monday, I asked you listeners for help on a question that's been bugging me for a while now. Basically... Could the EU bring forward that 2050 net-zero climate target? Would it be politically and technically feasible to pull it off? Some countries have revised their national deadline dates since the EU came out with what was at the time a landmark target. But things change. The science evolves. Uh, Should that target change too? We ran a couple of polls through the course of this week, and the results are now in. On LinkedIn, 54% of you said that it would not be feasible to change the target anytime soon. On Twitter, 52% of you came to the very same conclusion. A narrow split then. Let's dig into why it would be difficult for the EU to pull this off, how they could manage it, and why it might still be worth trying in any case. When the European Commission proposed a net zero target in 2018, it was actually quite surprising. Many experts and analysts had expected the EU's executive branch to come out with 90% or 95% reduction targets, or at least to give national governments the option to choose which they wanted to pursue. But no, it was net zero. By 2050, all the remaining emissions should be removed from the atmosphere by either natural or technological means. The EU eventually wrote it into law and began coming up with these sectoral targets to drag the block onto an emissions trajectory that makes net zero or climate neutrality actually feasible. A 2030 benchmark is in place and a 2040 target is on the way. Work on designing it is ongoing and we're expecting a first draft of it at the beginning of next year. The world of the energy transition is very fluid though as we all know. Things have changed since 2018, which seems like an absolute lifetime ago. Carbon budgets have continued to evaporate. Clean energy tech has accelerated at a rate of knots that even the most optimistic analysts did not expect. Extreme weather events triggered by climate breakdown continue to wreak havoc and cause hundreds of billions in damages. Plus there seem to be temperature records set on a monthly and even daily basis. That's not even to mention the pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. get more of a sense of why bringing the goalposts forward a bit might be difficult, but still worthwhile. I spoke with Brooke Riley, head of EU affairs at Rockwall. Would changing the 2050 target at this stage, you know, this linchpin of climate policy in Europe be feasible, you know, especially when we're talking about governments agreeing to this, signing up to it and really engaging with
0: it? I think governments have to prove to themselves that this net zero thing is feasible. And when you look at what happened with the whole for 55 discussions, it was pretty challenging at times. I'm working a lot on the buildings directive at the moment, and you do see this big yawning gap between the level of ambition, which member states all agree uh, in council discussions is necessary to go net zero. And then what they're actually prepared to sign up to, we get into the nitty gritty of the negotiations. So, I mean, at the moment on the buildings directive, the commission started off with a level of ambition before uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the council tried to reduce that. Uh, the parliament went for a higher target as usual, and now we're looking to agree on the original commission level of ambition, which is simply not in line with latest developments. It's it's too weak compared to what's being done on renewables or in energy efficiency at the moment. So we're not prepared to up our game at the moment on one of the most fundamental parts of the climate action policies, that is to say buildings renovation. So yeah, you got to ask yourself, is there a member state's ambition to go for more, to go for a, an earlier net zero target than, than 2050. But I don't know, maybe it's um, maybe it's cyclical, right? Back in 2017, 2018, you, you remember Sam, just how hard it was even for the commission to convince themselves to go net zero. They did. They then followed through with a whole raft of legislation, a lot of which is pretty good and considerably more ambitious than we were counting on at the time. I'm thinking of the 2030 energy efficiency target, for example, which is, you know, off the modeling charts compared to what the commission was considering just six, seven years ago. So I think what, what we've seen over the past few years is that there is a lot of appetite for ambition then you run into this oh my god what have we signed up to moment from the member states and then there's more and more evidence that actually the benefits of acting are considerably greater than the benefits of, of supposed benefits of sitting back and not doing much and relying on business as usual so
1: the ambition just really isn't
0: there at the moment is is what you're saying so at the moment Yeah, you can't deny it. We're in the doldrums of climate action and climate ambition. There isn't political headspace. There are too many concurrent events. Climate action isn't seen as this cross-cutting solution the way I think it was back in 2018, 2019. But I think there's going to be an uptick again. And I think that the 2040 climate and energy target discussions are going to be a real test of Really, what level of ambition we consider for 2040, and whether this would mean that it would be possible to to bring forward the net zero date? I mean, you you do have countries, Denmark among them, which believe that we should get to a considerably higher pathway target in 2040, and you've got quite a few countries who'd like to think let's ease the pressure off between 20th or 30, 2040, 2045, and then we can spring into action between 45 and 50. And then you've got other countries, Denmark among them, who are saying, well, no, we should actually be doing more in 2040 than if we were on just a linear pathway to 2050. So if you can bring together the different GDP, the energy security, the, the, the living costs, benefits, then you can really make a compelling case for advanced action in 2040. And then if you can get that locked in, then suddenly going for net zero by, say, 2045, begins to look far more feasible and and attractive, right? It's just a matter of momentum. We had a lot of momentum in favor of higher ambition back in 2017, 18, 19. We're losing that a bit at the moment, but I think it's going to pick up again.
1: So that's a little bit of insight into the political hurdles that a 2050 update would have to overcome. What about the technical aspects? Could it actually be pulled off? I asked the European Environmental Bureau's Luke Haywood for his take.
2: Yes, I... I believe it could be done. Um, So from the European Environmental Bureau, we've been working together with CAN Europe, the Renewable Grid Initiative, and REN21, uh, other civil society organizations, on a Paris-compatible agreement scenario. This is an energy systems model um, in which we have modeled precisely this. We have modeled bringing forward uh, net zero To 2040, so 100% renewables in Europe. Um, And uh, there's some very detailed uh, sector analysis behind that. It's very simple, actually. There's two really important ingredients. The first is energy demand reductions. So we need to save energy, we need energy efficiency. Uh, And the second is we need to ramp up renewables. And uh, if we do these two things uh, methodologically and strongly, then we can achieve this, we can bring forward the, the net zero target. It took a Herculean effort
1: to get this 2050 target on the books in the first place. As one senior official told me at the time, this was absolutely crucial so that all the other rules and regulations governing renewables, transport, agriculture and so forth uh, could be filled in afterwards. Setting the destination was the really difficult part. Maybe it's not feasible at the moment to bring it forward five or ten years, but politics changed quickly. A new European Commission will be appointed next year, and a new European Parliament as well. If we have a rough winter with energy price spikes again, then who knows, that momentum that Brooke mentioned could well be regained. In any case, as time goes by, we'll soon be talking about when countries should be net negative, absorbing more CO2 than what is being released. The Commission will have to start a new countdown timer for that one. Many thanks for joining me for today's jolt. I'll be back next week on Monday for much more of the same bite-sized news updates and a look at the story of the moment. I hope you can join me. In the meantime, check out this week's edition of the Policy Dispatch, all about Brazil. Also check out our latest deep dive article, which looks at why the case for baseload power is being undermined by solar PV. You can listen to all of these episodes either on the website, in-app, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter as well. You've only got a short window in which to sign up, so please do so if you are interested. Thanks again to everyone at Foresight for helping to make The Jolt possible, and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of The Jolt.